mistake that many photographers make as they make a go at being a professional photographer is believing that being a generalist is an advantage. Saying that you can photograph anything doesn't leave the impression with the client that you think it should make. Secondly, it leaves the photographer to be defined by what they're hired to do rather than by the work that they have a passion for. You may achieve financial success, but it may not be the type of photography that sings to your heart. Alan Clark had a clear idea of the kind of photographer he wanted to be and the kinds of photographs he wanted to make. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, his desire to be a photographer in the music industry could have led him to photograph country music stars. But he didn't want his physical address to pigeonhole his photography or his aspirations. So he created his own path as a commercial and editorial photographer, resulting in a career that has allowed him to photograph the likes of Sir George Martin, Ethan Hawke, Bob Newhart, and two former presidents. I hope this conversation demonstrates the importance of defining who you want to be and who you are as a photographer. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. All right, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So glad you got a nice mic. You got a good voice. So this should be, this is going to sound good. You know, have you ever watched 30 Rock? No, no. Uh, Alec Baldwin and uh, Will Arnett both have amazing voices. And so they played that up a lot. And and uh, that's two of our strengths as well. So they had like a sexy voice off at one point. <laughs> and then get like, real close to each other and be like, I can't do that. And then they want to be like, yes, you can. Like this. And so oh, that, oh, that's really good. That's good yeah, to know. yeah, man. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> Today's the, as we record this, the uh, astronauts took off on the caps on the rocket today. And I know you're a geek. You can no, say that. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, um, he's I, I don't know what you're saying. A Neil, was it? Neil Armstrong? Neil Armstrong kind of, yeah, it's a replica of his suit over a hoodie. So, yeah, I've completely nerded out today. You've you photographed a bunch of the uh, of the suits, but where did the fascination begin? I think, like most of us, you think of these images and you dream when you were a child, like I was. I wanted to be an oceanographer. I wanted to be part of the Cousteau Society. I wanted to be an astronaut. And I sat in my second, third grade class and looked out the window and it reflected on every port, report card I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I would get these notes on my report cards and to be like a U for unsatisfactory. He just doesn't pay attention. He looks out the window constantly. That's what I got. Unsatisfactory. That's what they had on the report cards right then. But that's what he so, does. That's what it takes. That's what a dreamer looks like when they're little. Uh, we have the album of recordings of the Apollo flight at, at my house growing up. So it was like a double album and it had pictures of the flight. And I remember, I didn't think I really understood exactly what I was listening to. I just kind of thought it was rather cool. Yeah. So it that record on and just listen to it and look at it, looking at the pictures. I think it's probably still in my house somewhere. I have wow. to pull it, even though I don't have a, a record player anywhere near. What? But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not one of those... I'm not one of those guys. Are you saying you're not a hipster? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think I missed that by a couple of decades, man. I don't know. Sometimes my wife tells me I'm the original hipster. Really? She's like, you <laughs> might have invented some of this. And I'm like, I don't know. But then I look at myself 
when I do that, like I'll you know still have a record player and and listen to things, and you know she may be right. <laughs> so when when did the idea that you wanted to be able to photograph the spacesuit? Because you photographed a number of them. I have, and and you know I guess uh, the idea came along. Huntsville Space and Rocket Center is only two and a half hours from Nashville. So I have been going down there since I was a kid. My parents took me when I was little and it's just never stopped. And it's something like a tradition. I take, I took my children there and I've had photo shoots there. I've showed up multiple times. I don't think they, I don't, I don't go enough to where they're sick of me, but it's pretty close Mm -hmm. and just kept going there and going there. But then when I would do like photo shoots across, you know, our great country, I would go to in, in Boston, there's a, like a museum for JFK and I've, I've been there and just the scene in Johnson space center in Houston, of course, and all the different spots. Every time I get a chance, I will go and visit and just take my camera with me when I go. And my whole point is to just record these, but to record them like I would do it and not like a tourist would. I try to actually light it really well. And sometimes you get permission to do these things and sometimes you don't, but most of these things are on public display and we're American citizens. So we can kind of like the Smithsonian, people don't know this, but all, all, all the museums in DC are all free to American citizens because that's part of our taxes and that's what it goes towards. And so you can kind of do just about anything, you know, and request these types of things. So it started years ago for Huntsville space and rocket center, which was a privately funded thing. And it was on the Redstone arsenal, uh, right next to the arsenal base. And of course, uh, Werner von Braun worked out of Huntsville developing the Saturn five. And so it's steeped like a weird thing, like in Alabama of all places is steeped in this rocket tradition, you know, that no people just don't know about. And they kind of had them there just to kind of hide them a little bit, you know, we kept them safe there instead of putting them in a bigger city like DC or New York. But that's when the fascination started for me is from a very early age, just repeatedly going down there and, and shooting these things. And, um, you know, on crappier cameras when I was little, like Instamatics and disc cameras, <laughs> even growing up as a, with a Nikon and a Hasselblad. What was the one that gave you the, the, the biggest thrill when you had the, the chance to photograph it properly? It's interesting. It's, it's, I don't even know whose it is. I think it's part of the Mercury program. Maybe the Gemini, because both of, both of the suits were silver and there were different types of silver. One, it looked like it actually had was made of asbestos. It did not look healthy. So that might've been the earlier one. It just looked like the metal or the uh, silver parts were kind of coming off and everything. But it's a photograph uh, that I shot probably close to 10 years ago or more. And I think it's just special almost because it was the first time I attempted something like that. I remember putting the lights on top of the case. This is when I got permission to be in the building and shooting um, Apollo 16's command module. And again, I had like two or three assistants with me and we kind of they wouldn't let you um, take it out of the case or you know get in the case or get behind the glass or anything like that. So we just kind of lit it in creative ways so that there wouldn't be any glare. And even when you did that you know, still, there's still going to be some glare somewhere. So you'd see a light come up. And so I, that was easy to take out in Photoshop. But I think it was just because it was my first. And I'm not sure actually what astronaut this belonged to. It could have been a test pilot because that would happen sometimes too. They would use test pilot things. And NASA kind of somewhere between the Air Force and NASA kind of like went bounce back and forth, you know. So you got started not as a, um, a photographer. You were repping, I guess, some, uh, some bands or some musicians. Started in and, the music industry, yeah. Yeah. So tell me what that was about and what sparked the idea that you wanted to be a photographer instead. I honestly came to a place where all my friends were in bands and I just had to come to the grips with it. Just my, that light just didn't burn as bright for me. I, I love playing music, can play music. I play piano and drums and sing a little bit, but you know, I live in Nashville and in Nashville it's, you need to know how to really play to be here. And there's songwriters everywhere. I grew up with songwriter kids 
or, you know, kids of songwriters, real famous uh, songwriters, in fact, and kind of grew up in studios, grew up in that situation. So, you know, being in that, I just thought that that would be something that I wanted to do as well. And I had to come to grips with the fact that I just wasn't as talented as they were. And I think I got to that place. And once I realized that I was like, okay, well then I I thought I would go into business, like and be in the music business Mm -hmm. the whole time I'm, you know, shooting and using my cameras and, and, um, still had my Minolta XG9 at that stage and use that on a regular basis, shooting parties and friends, just usually always this fun. And at some point, you know, I just kept progressing in the music industry to the point where I was an agent at the William Morris agency, uh, which is America. I think it's the oldest agency started in 1898 and Charlie Chaplin was their first client and they have a Nashville office. And so I ended up in the artist development division there and, you know, kind of was part of, you know, making some bands uh, discovered, you know, and just kind of supporting them on the road when they were on the road. I was kind of the fill-in guy. I handled them and did a lot of research trying to figure out how to get them from point A to point B. And I was kind of the guy that 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 filled in the gaps. A lot of times, you know, the weekends are the most popular, but they also have to get from point A to point B. So I was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday guy. <laughs> That's kind of how that started. But then I just kind of like at some point, the music industry kind of folded on me anyway. And I just thought, you know, I've never given this a shot. I should try to give this a shot. And I had friends of mine just trying to convince me to take money and do this. And I just, I don't know, I guess I just thought I either had to do school photos, you know, the type of things we do in our little hometown. And I just wasn't convinced or I didn't know that you could do the commercial photography on the scale that that I do now and that I saw a lot of other people do. I just didn't know how to get there, you know. I think that's because of that. What was the catalyst? What was the trigger to, that made you realize that you could actually make a living from it? The catalyst, I, I think, was that up until that moment, I had been shooting bands and solo artists and songwriters and things like that. And at some point when the music industry kind of failed, I went to the bigger artists that actually were signed. And I said, at some point, I don't know when, it may take a year or something like that. I'm going to come back to a lot of you guys and, and ask to photograph you. And they all were up for it. They were, they knew me, they'd worked with me and they were very comfortable with me. And, uh, they, you know, two or three, I can remember just going back to a few of the writers and Warner brothers and things like that. And then they all said, yes. And to me, I didn't understand it at the time, but that's always been a part of my build this whole time. I felt like I always had to scratch and claw my way out of, of where I was, you know, you grow up in Nashville, you're going to shoot Nashville people, but I didn't want to shoot Nashville people. I wanted to shoot rock and I wanted to shoot hip hop and I wanted to shoot things like that. And that's, that wasn't happening in Nashville. So I knew that I was going to have to really work harder to try to put something into my portfolio that didn't exist. And so when it didn't exist, I just made it up, uh, the fake it till you make it type of thing. But the whole time I'm, you know, learning and, and training and that type of stuff. And I would use my friends and they were, some of them were actors and things like that. But I really, really worked hard to make things that did not look like Nashville out of my portfolio. And it was almost like, a, it wasn't that I was embarrassed to be from here. It was that I just didn't really have any interest in country music as much, weirdly growing up in Nashville. <laughs> and you, you don't want to be pigeonholed as just another Nashville country photographer. And there was a lot of them. And, and a lot of these guys I looked up to and respected and loved them because of it. You know, there was a Slick Lawson and Slick would shoot a lot of the country stuff. But then he turned around and do average white band. He did all of average white band's photo shoots. And it was so cool. And I just kind of totally looked up to him. And, you know, because sometimes they all would come through at some point and record in Nashville because their studios were still amazing, you know. And uh, other photographers like uh, Mark Tucker, he shot all the Jack Daniels marketing campaigns for years and years and years. And sometimes I will come in and shoot some stuff for them. And But most of the time he's done this literally like 
every time you see one of those guys on the on the porch with a Jack Daniels barrel and those ads, that's Mark, you know. So there were guys that were here that were working silently, probably not getting as much credit as the New York guys, LA guys that I always respected and wanted to be. But I knew that I also wanted to travel and I wanted to do things that didn't look like where I was, but where I wanted to be, you know. Yeah. So how did being a rep for musicians help you when it came time to make photographs since you had understanding more than you know how to make a nice picture but more so about how these musicians the the labels the marketing people wouldn't what their needs were you had a much clearer understanding than i'd say that the average photographer did so what difference did that make in terms of the way you worked i'm so glad you asked that because i think i missed that one a lot or at least forget to bring it up and that is because i was working in the artist development department I was the one, they literally made me the one to receive all the incoming packages for people who wanted to make it in the industry. And so I would probably get 30 packages a week, uh, sometimes 30 a day, just depending on, you know, the cycles. But I would see these packages come in and that would be a, you know, an eight by 10, it'd be a bio, it'd be all this stuff usually shoved into a folder, cassette tape, CDs, you know, anything they could record on. Uh, even that, that tape sometimes and they would send all this stuff in and I was the guy I think no one else wanted to do it I was you know I was literally one I did start in the mailroom and then I went into artist development which was just one step above the mailroom I was also the AV guy for the whole place uh, so I kind of did that type of stuff for setting up meetings and they kind of relied on me a lot to kind of take care of a lot of things they didn't want to take care of and and uh, the submissions that would come in so after about a thousand of these submissions, you start realizing there's a pattern. And the pattern was this. If the recording sounded horrible and the pictures usually were horrible, there's a systemic problem there. And I could tell when the pictures started, mm, oh, okay, they know what they're doing. And then I would play the music and I would be like, oh, okay. And they knew what they were doing on the music. It almost went hand in hand. And it was really interesting. It was almost like a mentality when they knew how to record properly and to make good songs, they also knew how to hire somebody to do this for them, like photos. But man, you should see the ones that weren't, they would submit Owen Mills photos. They would, they would have their moms or dad. It was so bad. And they would um, be on their back porch. Like I, I had this one time I got this one photo and it was a band and they just got on the back deck of their house and they laid like, all were laying down like in a pose, like they would if it was a family photo. <laughs> And they weren't being ironical. It was the, <laughs> they were being for real. And I was like, oh, guys, no. And the music was horrible. And again, it just, it always seemed to go hand in hand. That was, I was on the receiving end of this decision, you know, that they made when they were trying to make it. And so that was one of the biggest indicators. I kind of kept thinking, I can do that. You know, I can take, I can take these photos and it's going to come out better than this, you know? And so yeah. I kind of had, I saw this uh, mistakes and or successes happen on a regular basis. And that's kind of what I think actually built in my mind that I actually could do this. And, and I think it was up until that point, I literally had two packages, one with the Olin Mills, which I didn't want to be right. And then, the, then the one where they hired somebody and it looked incredible. And I kept seeing the same names pop up in Nashville, Ron Keith, Mark Tucker, Slick Lawson, different people that were here that were working and were incredible photographers at the time. You know, Norman Jean Roy started here. He started in Nashville and um, was a painter, did all kinds of stuff, and then left here and went to LA and got a Mercedes Benz ad. I think he got the cover of PDN and that really helped propel him to an agent from there. So there's a lot of great photographers that came from here that people just don't know. They don't have any idea that who they are. You know, Ockenfeld spent a lot of time in, in town here too because yep. oh, yeah. shot a lot of country. 
you know, he shot the Highwaymen records and Willie and Chris, Chris Christopherson by themselves. And so they've, they've done a lot of time here. A lot of those guys have done a lot of time here because the money was here, you know? And so I got experience with this type of stuff, but yeah, that's how it kind of, I guess, cemented for me was because I would see the mistakes and the successes laying next to each other. And I could tell that I could put that together for myself. So how'd you educate yourselves both with respect to photography techniques, lighting cameras, and the business side. So basically, um, like a lot of us, we worked at photo labs, you know, there was a photo lab here in town. It was Wolf camera. We had Wolf camera. I don't know if you guys had Wolf cameras. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we had Wolf cameras and their competitor was a place called Dury's. I'd worked at both. I'd, you know, early on I'd worked at Wolf camera. And then I, uh, later on when I started becoming a photographer, I'd worked at Dury's, which was our competitor for, you know, Wolf camera. And they recently just closed. They've been open since 1882. And it was really sad. They were one of the first seven, or at least I think one of the first three to, to train or at least use Kodak. And that's incredible. It was, but uh, they just recently closed, you know, COVID took them out. It's been big news here in Nashville because they've been around forever, but that's where I worked at this photo lab there. And I worked on the smaller uh, printer, this four by sixes and stuff like that. But I had a really good friend that worked over on the larger and he was really good. He had a BA in photojournalism from Western Kentucky, which I don't know if you know, but like above of the photojournalistic uh, universities in our nation, you know, RIT, there's one in um, Missouri mm-hmm. and then Bowling Green, Western Kentucky University actually has, t- I think, two to three Pulitzer prize winners. And think the one in Missouri actually has tons, you know, so they go through the Tribune or whatever, and then they're, you know, skyrocket into their own careers. But uh, my friend Scott went to that school and was fantastic, had the degree, had a BA in photo, you know, in, in photojournalism. And he uh, and I just were like, we kind of like, you know, hung out and we thought that, you know, got along really well. And then we just decided to start our own little thing together really to kind of pool our equipment and our resources. I was better at kind of people skills and I don't think he was as good, but he had the training in a Hasselblad camera. So we kind of, you know, kind of met up and decided to make a little thing. We called it Thunder Image Group. At the time, the group was two. (laughs) So I went back to, again, just kind of went through the music people that I worked with and things like that. And I was always kind of seemed like I was the guy that kind of brought the business in. And then once we got him in, he would, you know, shoot and I would shoot. Uh, But he had such great training. And honestly, I, I feel like I got a lot of his knowledge that he was able to get in university. And that was kind of my early training. And, but, you know, because up to that point, I hadn't really had any. And it was all just kind of, you know, winging it for me. And uh, I had experience with printing and things like that during that period. And also, um, you know, moving up to medium format cameras, which is a huge deal. And he, he was actually really good at like training me too. We did a little contest sometimes. We were bored waiting for the next shoot. And he would actually make me close my eyes. It was almost like a soldier, you know, and load the 120 millimeter film with my eyes closed. And he would, uh, we'd have a contest to see who could win. And, and that was kind of the, some of the things we did. It was kind of fun to having somebody to kind of work and go through this stuff with. That's cool. So what was a job or, a, or an image that was a breakthrough for you in terms of you creating a, a distinctive voice for yourself as a photographer in the industry? Well, what's interesting is, you know, we continued that little partnership for a while, but at some point we parted ways and I had people looking at me going, are you still going to shoot? And I was like, why are you asking me that? Of course I am. But I think they knew Scott was more of the technical person than I was. And so I kind of took that to heart, not meaning I got upset about it. I just said, you know what, I'm going to dig in. And I started just my training. I got a lot from him. 
But then it wasn't too long after that I took uh, my first uh, Santa Fe workshop. And it was 97, and it was Dan Winters was my first Santa Fe workshop. And you can look at my work and see the massive difference in it in that little year, years period. And in that little year, I just, you know, I put ads in. Back in the day, we had these things called Black Book and Workbook. And you would put your um, your information and your photos, your layout and all that type of stuff in these books. And it was a resource directory for photo editors and art directors, you know, at magazines, labels, ad agencies. And so you would just pay and it was a lot of money. It was like three or $4,000 if you wanted to get a two page spread. And, but you know, they, every art director, every photo editor had this in their office, in their cubicle on the shelf. The second they wanted to hire any one of us, they went through that book because it was divided by States. And so I would sometimes get the Nashville or the Tennessee or the Southeastern region phone call. If the work was strong, you'd get hired. If it wasn't, no one would call. And so I got a phone call out of nowhere from Guitar World Acoustic Magazine to shoot Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds when they were doing their live at Luther College tour. The dates didn't work out for the Nashville show, but I ended up going to Louisville, Kentucky and shooting them at the Palace Theater in Louisville. And I think I did this in my presentation with the evenings with the masters. And that was kind of my big break shooting Dave Matthews. Uh, I remembered at some point, I just remember thinking, I'm going to separate the two of them. And I shot, I kind of shot Tim first and did a lot of shots of him by himself. And then I'm going to shot, shoot Dave by himself. And then that, that kind of like that thinking is what kind of paved a little bit of the future for me because the next year, unbeknownst to me and a lot of fans, he had a solo record and there was no shots of him by himself. And I just got really lucky. You know, I just got really lucky. I've always had this little thing or almost like a trend. I can kind of spot a trend before it happens. That was kind of it. It would just hit. It just was the right moment. And I can't tell you how much money I made on the, that shoe because it went everywhere. I mean, magazines all over the world. Um, Rolling Stone, of course, used it. People, uh, <laughs> got, a check, got a check from Playboy. Shocked my ex-wife at the time. She was like, wait, oh, she called me and she's like, hey, we got a check from Playboy. What is this? And I was, <laughs> and I was like, open it. I just told her, I said, open it. And she, she, you could get here. Like, she's ruffling around, and and then there's just this big silence. And I said, "Is that is that still okay?" <laughs> it was a lot of money, and she never asked me again after that. That's funny, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how uh, that happened. And then from there, it just kind of that, that's what I needed. I needed, I needed a, a victory like that, and that's what happened for me. We have uh, we, we have mutual uh, love and respect for Bill Allard. Yes, we do. And, um, and there's a um, basically a, a, where he's explained where, where he goes into a town. He'll go into a bar or go to a sit down on a curb having a sandwich, and he'll just have his camera there and he'll just wait, you know. And people are just going to be curious about him, and then you know he'll get to know people, and he'll wait for those moments in order to take a picture. And I always love love that about how he establishes a, a presence there and doesn't just dive in and make a photograph. And I know that that made a big impression on you as well. But how did you translate that into what you do as a photographer? Because you're not doing documentary work. A lot of your work is portraiture. So how do you how do you translate what Bill was doing to these one-on-ones you would have with musicians or with bands? Man, that was incredible. I'm glad you brought that up. But I, I, I called him when I was 19 years old. Oh, yeah, I called him. They made Kodak Super Life. Remember that film? It was called Kodak mm-hmm. Super Life. And they made a book, like a promotional piece for that film. And for some strange reason, they put Bill's number in there. <laughs> I don't know why. Really? Put his phone number in the studio. 
Oh and, my God. And I, he must have been excited and probably wanted to kill them. And I <laughs> took that number and I called, I called him and I was 19. I was working at Wolf Camera and I left a message on a Friday afternoon. He called me back Monday morning and it just shocked me because I was the ma- assistant manager at the time. And it shocked me. I answered the phone and you hear this, it was the selling clerk. And I'm like, I got shot. Yeah. Yes, yes, it is. And he goes, this is Bill Allard. And I, you know, his full name is William Albert Allard. That's how I recognized it. And so it kind of threw me for a second. And then I realized it was him. And I would just was like completely like clarity. <clears throat> he, I, I just asked him the simple question. I said, if you could tell a 19 year old who's about to start a photography career, anything you could say to him, what would that be? And he told me what you just said. And he said that, you know, he would, make a sandwich and for three days like if he was scheduled to shoot from the 25th to the 27th he'd go down on the 23rd and wouldn't leave to the 30th and he would go down and just make a sandwich or a series of sandwiches and just plop down in the center of town or in the middle of the village or wherever he was going whatever the assignment was and it was important for him to establish a connection that's what he talked about was establishing that connection because I, all I could think about, and you, you'll know, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Did you ever see the piece he did for National Geographic where he was doing third world country, but in America? It was like third world country photography. And he went to Mississippi and Appalachia and all these different little places. And it was just this type of stuff like you wouldn't expect a, a kid to still be walking, walking on a dirt floor. But yeah. it happens. And so he did the, And the cover was this uh, beautiful little uh, African-American, probably tween probably had to been 11 12 something like that and it was just shallowed up the field right in this kid's face and it was just right up close and all i could think about was a guy that looks like santa claus taking a a white santa claus taking a photograph of this african-american child probably in an african-american community and that's all i could think about was how did you do that not how did you do that how did you do that yeah Mm -hmm. and that's he told me that and that and I just was so perplexed by that. It crosses all boundaries and it crosses all division, to be honest. And I just said that's that's what I want to that's what I want to do. I want to I want to you know go pat through all those boundaries and knock those walls down and just establish connection. And it actually works because even on a commercial shoot when you're working with an artist, all of them are nervous. I've literally seen people walk off stage, come to do a portrait with me, and like f- almost fall apart. And like I watched once, you know, I can't tell you who the artist was because I had to sign an ND, but um, left the stage sweaty and everything. Could see him literally walk off the side of the stage, come down the hallway and then come to me and almost literally just fall apart. You'd think that he just came off the, he came off the stage, 18,000 people, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you think they're used to this and they're not. It's something vulnerable about showing themselves when you do a photo and they know this and they protect that and they're afraid of it. And, and that trust level still has to be there. It doesn't matter who they are, or what you're doing. It doesn't matter if it's street shooting or if it's, um, you know, commercial photography, it's the same thing. So how do you handle that when you only have maybe minutes to photograph? Sometimes you, I, I do a lot. I like you, I do a lot of research on the people that I'm talking to or shooting with or working with. I do a lot of research. I, fi- I find out what the things, the common interests that they have that I have. Uh, sometimes I don't have the common interests, and I don't actually try to make it seem as if, but I do try to get them to talk and I'll ask them questions. And, you know, I'll say, you know, what's your favorite, you know, something like what's your favorite band right now? Or if they like um, UFC fighting or anything like that, I'll just bring up the thing and get them to talk about it, get them to talk about themselves, you know, and most of the time, sometimes uh, they'll bring up photography. 
they'll talk about, you know, my dad was a photographer, my uncle was a photographer. You know, when I was younger, I did it. I did. I was a photographer. And then I just try to almost like get them to talk about themselves. And before they know it, the shoot's almost over. Uh, it's just kind of a feeling where they uh, feel, I don't know. And maybe I just put off a vibe, you know, to where you can trust being around me and you feel yourself around me and stuff like that. And I'm pretty real. Like I've never, any celebrity I've ever worked with, I, I treat them the exact same way as I would one of my friends. And that's just straightforward, honest, kind. This is a safe place. You can pretty much know most of those things within, I don't know, five minutes being hanging around me. You know, I know, for instance, like, you know, I, th there was no connection between me and James Earl Jones. I had nothing. You know, I did not want to bring up Star Wars. I did not want to bring up Lion King. I just wanted, I, I, but I, I, to me, what was important, I knew what was important to him. It was Great White Hope. It was some of his older work, you know? Yeah. And there was a piece in Field of Dreams that, you know, Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, had went kind of kidnapped him and took him to a game because he knew he was supposed to take him to this game in Field of Dreams. And then he gets the message on the scoreboard. It has nothing to do with Terrence Mann, uh, James Earl Jones's character. He goes to take him back home. And I noticed that when he, James Earl Jones, got out of the car and he goes, you saw another vision, didn't you? He said, what did it say? He said, leave the man alone. And so he gets out of the van, shuts the door. When he, he's leaning in like this, talking to Kevin Costner, when he leans back, he, he goes like that. And he backed away. And I said, why did you do that? <laughs> and he, he just looked at me and he said, you know, no one's ever asked me that. No one, not even mm -hmm. the director. I think it was Peter Weir, but I'm not sure. But whoever yeah, directed, I said, are you serious? No one ever asked you that? Didn't, weren't they curious why you did that? Like, that's crazy. I said, nope, no one's said, you're the first person to ever ask me. And he goes, and I'll tell you. And he was so excited. And he, oh. it was so cool. And it was a, a riverboat gamblers when they would back away from the table when they were finished, they would do that to show they had nothing up their sleeve. And uh, that was their way of, of showing that, they, you know, there was no reason for them to get <laughs> shot, I guess. And I love moments like that. That's me, great. Me too. And I've had a, you, you practice that, you put that into practice and then you get good at it. And that's kind of what happened. I, I would take those risks. And sometimes, man, I have been on shoots. It was super tense because these people either were not used to talking to, but or everyone around them treated them like eggshells. So I would say something or I'd ask a question like that. And it was like the record scratching like this. And like they were so worried about how the person would respond. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it was kind of a bold question and I would take a risk and do it anyway. And I don't think I've ever failed. I've tried and I've lobbed them up and it's been a lead balloon, but I don't think anybody's walked off the shoot or been upset with me when I've said this. I can, I shot when I was photographing Dana Carvey. Um, he, his first movie that he was ever in was Spinal Tap. I mean, come on. His first line, or at least when he was spoken to in the movie was by Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal, they were both uh, mimes that were doing catering. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and it was called Shut Up and Eat. That was the name of their character. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember there was the point where Billy Crystal looked at Dana Carvey and just said, do the dead, do the dead bird. And he's like walking out to take the food out. He's like, do the dead bird. Don't give me any back lip, you know? And he's telling him, he's yelling at him what to do and everything. And so I, I said this during the shoot, I said, do the dead bird. Don't, don't give me any back lip, you know? And I said that lead balloon, man, it just like did not go over well at all. And the guy that's been working with me forever, Scott just kind of looked at me like, Oh crap, what do we do now? <laughs> and, and, you know, he was cordial. I probably had another five 
the seven minutes with them. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. And, but, you know, it's worth the risk because about seven times, eight times out of 10, it, it does work. And you get some amazing yeah. stuff. I mean, James Earl Jones photos, you can literally see the difference. He's like this. And then after I talked to him about the field of dreams, it was this, it was this, it was a lighter moment, lighter, you know, lighter uh, photographs. Yeah. You can't uh, be intimidated by the subject. You're supposed to be in control. And if they sense that you, you aren't, you've lost them. It's like, uh, what is it? They always say like, you know, bees and dogs can smell fear, you know, kind of thing. It's like that, you know, it gets like that. There's a tension. And if you just float the first thing out there, whether it's a statement, a joke, a question or something like that, and they can tell that you have that kind of personal strength, they rise to that place with you or, or come down in their own minds to the place with you. Uh, but they're there. They see you as a peer when you can kind of control the room like that. Yeah. What's for me, what's always been kind of interesting are not, not the people that put up resistance like that, but it's more people who are used to being in control. As soon as they walk into the room, they're like, you know, this is mine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have to sort of take back the reins. Mm. You, you got a story along those lines? Yeah. I was uh, photographing George W. Bush and uh, he uh, just literally talked about this last night. I had a, we, uh, we were at a little dinner party with a friend of mine who works for the white house I told this story last night and it was basically um, <laughs> he walked in and the reason why I told the story is because my friend who worked for the white house worked in that administration as well. And he just, they get a big kick out of George W's stories. And to say that he is his, the imitation of him, Will Ferrell does is so spot on. I can't even begin to tell you how exactly <laughs> he talks and acts pretty much like that. It's exactly like the imitation, but he walked in the room and he just started shouting at the second he walked in. It was like, let's get this party started. I mean, it was just like that. And it was so mm -hmm. loud and it just, you know, the presence was almost like preceded him into the room. And, and, and I just kind of threw my hand up and I was like, I'm over here. And he, uh, he just started yelling. Who's the man? Who's the man like that? <laughs> and I was like, I am, sir. And uh, I could just remember in my head, like thinking if I had grown up with him and was at parties with that guy, he is not the guy you want to give cocaine to. <laughs> I was just like, do not give that guy Coke. Uh, and he had that kind of just natural energy and it just kind of almost just changes the whole room. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to understand that when these people win elections and win things, maybe it's not based on whether they should be there or not. It's based on charisma. Like, being charismatic, you know, yeah. and you don't realize how, I mean, we have Hitler as that example, and I'm not comparing GW and Hitler, but I'm just saying you can see how charisma carries people uh, and, and can be in front of people. Sometimes it has a power, like you can't even understand it. This is why we go to concerts, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you, how did you manage to maintain control of that particular shoot? You just ride the wave. Sometimes it's so powerful. You either get on it or you get in, caught up in the undertow. Uh, that's one of the rare occasions where I just let him, kind of appease himself. It was so weird. Like I can remember, and I think I told the story at evenings with the masters. Uh, they only let you have, you know, eight to 10 shots. I mean, you're lucky to get a full roll. If it, in the old days I shot, I photographed his father too. And so that with Hasselblad camera, I think I may have gotten two rolls. I don't know how I got two rolls out of him with 12 secret service standing around me, but I did. And so they kind of know this about me. I will, I will photograph until I kind of am forced to stop. That's kind of how I am. And uh, I had photographed maybe eight or nine shots. And then I remember on the eighth one, I just kind of just said to everyone that was surrounded by secret service. I said, tell me when I've done too much. 
And they almost like they'd practiced this in unison. They'd all at the same time went, you've done too much. <laughs> and I remember turning around because I kind of felt like they were coming up on me. There was two or three Secret Service people kind of walking towards me. I was like, oh, crap. And I did this. I turned around. When I came back, my, my camera was gone. I didn't have it in my hand anymore. And I look up and GW is holding my camera in his hand. And I didn't know how to respond. I looked at him and I just said, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I didn't know what to say. It just kind of threw me for a loop. And he didn't even acknowledge what I said and just started looking around. And there was, keep in mind, there was two Secret Service women in the room. And he just went, hey, one of you Secret Service guys, get over here and take our picture. And uh, one of the Secret Service men came up and just grabbed the camera from me and then, or him actually, and then took our photo together. And it was so funny in the photo, you can see me looking at if he's got the, if he's doing the right stuff, you know, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> he got the, did he hold the button down? You know, yeah. uh, has he got the, he's, how's he framing it? You know, the whole time I'm, you could see like super judgy face on my, in my, in the photograph. <laughs> That's funny. I've been very touched by the messages and comments I've received on what the show means to you. So besides continuing to produce the show each week, I'm working on creating spaces for us to engage with each other. For our Patreon supporters, I've begun a monthly meetup where we discuss different aspects about photography and leading a creative life. And I've also launched a Discord account where supporters can dialogue and support each other. If you want to join this growing community and help support the work we do here at The Candid Frame, you can do it today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do that by contributing as little as $5 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thank you. So you've been around uh, uh, enough to go through some up and downs. And right now we've got, you know, a real challenge with COVID. A lot of a lot of businesses are, are 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 struggling, not least of which are photographers. But since you've experienced those those waves throughout your career, what what are some of the things that you think are important to do during times like this? You know, and I do have advice about all that type of stuff when it comes to marketing and making sure that your narrative is out there, making sure people know who you are. You know, social media, all the things that we're supposed to be doing. But I cannot emphasize enough how just making strong images. I cannot emphasize that enough. That speaks volumes. Sometimes when some of the things that you don't do very well, meaning like maybe you have a weakness in marketing and business or something like that, or maybe that you feel okay about your work, but not great. And to me, I can't emphasize enough the intensity to which like whatever genre that you shoot in. I just want to kind of encourage everybody to really throw themselves into it and stop thinking about all the things that they're not and start thinking about the things and the possibilities. Because to me, when you can throw yourself into your work and really put it all out there, that speaks more volumes than, than, than anything else that you could possibly do. So just by adding intensity to your work or really going for it, like what is this worth to you? What are you willing to sacrifice to get this stuff shot, to, to do the thing that you want to do? And, and to me, like that, that's actually pretty honest because that doesn't cost anything. That's something that you can do without, you know, having to spend a lot of money, but just really loving this, loving this like no other. And that's, and nobody's going to love your business and love who and what you're doing better than you are. So I suggest you do that, you know, but let me put, let me put, take that a little further. What makes an image strong? Cause there's plenty of work out there that I think is technically excellent. Mm-hmm. 
but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's something that ar- would arrest my attention if I was a art buyer or an editor to the point that would make me take the next step and contact the photographer. So for you, what do you mean by a strong, strong picture? I noticed that you, uh, we, we both use this phrasing. Sometimes I've, I've started to understand that you and I are very similar, by the way. And uh, you used a thing in one of your, you know, the podcast where you go through the Flickr uh, images. You said that something like images that will make you stop. And that's something that I think about a lot. And so what you've seen, what you've done, what you've seen others do is not going to get you, get, get someone to stop. It's going to have to be something that none of us have seen or a different take. And to me, so what you, what you need to do is you need to think about the risk involved with that. There's some risk in that. And so if it feels like it's comfortable, more than likely, this is not what you need to be doing. It's actually something that does feel uncomfortable. And it's going to be something that is honest and authentic and it's personal to you. And it's going to make sense when people see that you shoot this type of thing. And it could be that, you know, and I talk about it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It just matters that you need to be a hundred percent you. So if anything, it's just going to be you being more you. No, I completely agree. I've, I've anything I've learned, I think photography has learned, I've learned it from photography and I'm learning to apply it to everything else in my life. Mm-hmm. That if I'm not uncomfortable, I'm not working mm-hmm. hard enough. I'm settling mm-hmm. and whether it's how I deal with finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's my workouts at the gym, if mm-hmm. I'm not uncomfortable and I'm just like, this is good enough, mm-hmm. nothing special is going to happen. And in photography in the last several years, it's like I pursue that level of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just choosing a different lens or choosing a different subject matter or just tackling something in in, in a, a, a genre that I I'm, I'm not you know a, a proficient in or comfortable with, because that discomfort is where I experience those those epiphanies, those breakthroughs. Yeah. And if I ever want to get to the place where I make an image that I I feel is strong, that I feel I haven't seen not so much from another photographer, but that I haven't seen from myself, moments like that aren't going to happen. Mm-mm. It's interesting in what in your talk I think that you gave for evenings with the masters you talked a lot about how you know sometimes it's just hard to walk up to a stranger and to photograph them when you don't have a connection and I think you said that you gave a compliment is that right yeah mm-hmm. and that's so what you're going to have to do is be creative in the same way that you're creative as a photographer you're going to have to be creative in your approach sometimes how to get to where you're going to be because if you do the same thing you've always done some, it's probably not going to happen. And one of the biggest things for me has always been that, you know, I'm 50. I've done this. I've been around the world 40 million times. I've done all this stuff before. I've achieved some amazing goals. I'm really happy with m- myself and my career. However, <laughs> I also get lazy sometimes. I get uh, complacent. And um, I will have done something great. And I, But sometimes I just think, you know, I've done that. So, eh. I remember like, I don't know, three or four years ago, I got a phone call from a friend, a friend of mine who's a designer and he just said, Hey, it's supposed to, in Nashville, we do not get a bunch of snow. We just don't, it never happens. And we ended up getting, I think a full foot of snow. It was crazy. He said, it's supposed to snow a lot tomorrow. And I've been working on these, uh, designs for the Chinese market for weddings and uh, fantasy. And they're big into fantasy weddings in China. And he said, I've, I've developed this whole line of dresses and, and costumes and things like that. Uh, would you like to go out and do it? 
And I just thought about the snow, thought about I didn't want to get out in it, thought about, you know, I'd rather stay in and have some cocoa. I mean, all the things that we think, you know, and I told him no. And we got off the phone together. Hours go by bothering me, bothering me, bothering me. It just will not. It's just like yelling at me. You're an idiot. You need to do this. (laughs) And I called him back and I said, Jeff, let's do it. And I said, but on one condition, you have a, you have a four wheel drive. I do not. You have to come pick me up. (laughs) (laughs) And he did. And the shots were incredible. It's all that stuff in the snow, the model in the snow with the sword and the whole bit. And it was just, I, I, and I would have never done any of that. I'd never would have stretched myself like that had I not taken that chance. And so you have to get outside of yourself. You have to go past the same thing you always do, because if you're going to ever get a result back, that's going to be amazing you're going to have to make a Herculean effort to do yeah. it. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah, because we'll always find an excuse not to do something. Right? Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't have to be much. It is, oh, it's too cold. Oh, it's too hot. I do, oh, I don't have the right gear. Oh, I'm not in the mood. Oh, I got to get up early mm-hmm. tomorrow. Whatever it is. And then, but there's always going to be some other person who's out there and just, who's, who's working it, who's humping. And then the images that you love are made by people that do those types of things that make sacrifices that get out there and do it. And Sig Harvey calls it. Yeah, but yeah, but I don't this. And yeah, but you know what I mean? It's just that thing. You give those things and and that's what your work probably looks like if you're not careful. Well, that's a a good uh, segue to your own podcast because I really love that interview. I loved all the interviews you did so far with Sam Abel. And I love the one that you did with Sig Harvey, uh, which is great. But thank you. you you're, You're busy. Why the hell take on the challenge of producing a podcast on top of all that? It's interesting. It's not the first time I've been asked this question because I've ne- I've I haven't gotten to a place yet where I want to stop commercial photography and do this type of stuff. Uh, I think what it's allowing me to do is when I so here's the story, real short version. My wife and I we got married a year ago, June twenty second, but through immigration, we're still waiting on her to get to America. So I, in the process, I've tra- been traveling a lot. And when I go over there, Estonia is a much slower country, meaning their pace is just not as breakneck speed like our bigger cities here in America. And I've got a little bit more time on my hands when I go over there. I just started thinking, I want something to do when I'm over there because I, I, I did a few commercial jobs over there and I don't think I'm going to do that again. And they, they work so very differently than we do. And it was almost, I felt like a fish out of water and not saying that I haven't done things in foreign countries. I have, but trying to get into a business and a market in one specific area, it's just, it causes you to have to change a lot. And, and I just, honestly, the, the hot hand is here in, in, in Nashville. And uh, so I just, I kept thinking I would like something to do because I really, really enjoy other podcasts. I enjoy the build. I enjoy the process. And there's just no better way to learn and to be a part of this environment other than just jumping in. And I, honestly, I've done, you know, 10, four that you've heard. The, our fifth one will be out in about a week. And it's uh, Chris Gunn. He's a, a NASA photographer for the James Webb telescope. And um, he's incredible. And, um, I honestly learn almost as much as the rest of us when I go and do these things. I've sit here and listen to this podcast. I've listened to Sig's and Sam's and Chris Bucks, and I've each. And I'm, I'm like a big fan of the <laughs> of the podcast too. And I listen to them. I just learn so much from them. Like um, we just recently had a tornado in Nashville that just tore our city apart. When I, I went out to photograph, and there were some tough scenes. I mean, I walked up, I walked into a crime scene, a death scene. I'm not a photojournalist and I chose that on for a very specific reason. It's because I'm an old softy and I just can't deal with this stuff. And I walked into it and I had people yelling at me to stop freeze. And 
I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I started thinking about Sam's words about setting and then subject, setting and subject. And I kind of locked into some of the things that Sam had said to just get through what I just had just had seen. And it was a tough, it was a tough scene. And and I'm not used to this kind of stuff. And so I just shot the rest of the day and I was with the city and the National Electric Service doing on the assessment for the damage the tornado had done. And that's was the job to shoot that week. And um and just to get through the day, I was going through Sam's words over and over again, just to kind of try to be present because it really messed me up. It took me a couple of weeks to get over that. uh, It was horrible. So that's kind of why I do this because I find meaning in these things. And I love the relationships between each of us photographers and the build that we can kind of help each other. And on the way, that's, that's kind of why I do it. Well, welcome to the tribe, man. It's a small group, but you. you know, I, I, I'm enjoying what you're doing so far. Thank you do it for a while. Yeah, man. I plan on it. I'm not, I'm not just jumping in this to kind of do it for a period or a season. I kind of think I'm going to stay in this. I had a radio background in college and university, so I really, really enjoy it a lot. It's like talking about the thing that you love. How could you not love that? Yeah. And you get to talk to people yeah. whose work you admire and you respect, and, and it's nice. Absolutely. Like you. <laughs> One of the people who you photographed that was uh, – Interest for a variety of different reasons is Julian Assange, who has a bit of a point of controversy for God, for quite a while now. How did you come to to photograph him, and what you know what was the experience like? It was one of the happiest accidents I think I've ever come upon, and it was just very. I was there. A friend of mine is also a friend of his. Our friend's name is Sarah. She's a chef. She's a wonderful chef. Uh, Her stepdad was the, I believe uh, he was kind of the head of the department that Julian was in uh, journalism school in, in London. And this, and her stepdad was his kind of mentor at this university. I didn't know this. I didn't know this at all. I kind of, I heard friends talking about it, but she had come over a friend of mine had her over and she did like a brunch service and all this type of stuff. Cause she's a wonderful chef. And so we got to talking and she basically just said, Hey, you know, I, I paid a guy <laughs> to my website. I've got two images to speak of. And I've seen this happen a lot where they'll pay like 10 grand for a website and they get two images, basically a splash page and something else. Mm-hmm. This guy just did two photos and then did kind of put up a splash page and then ripped her off and, she was desperate to get other shots of what all the things that she did and all the types of uh, catering, you know, situations that she was in charge of. And, but what was amazing was that she, <laughs> she catered the Royal Ascot races. Uh, she catered a bike ride from London to Brighton beach. Um, she had a contract for a thing called a priory, which is basically a monastery, Michelin priory, and it was just like showing up at fairy tale. I had to like, I remember we drove across the moat into a castle and she had the contract for the restaurant on the property. And it was just like unbelievable contracts and things that she was doing. And, you know, she finished all this stuff and we were photographing her all along the way, her prepping food. Uh, like the priory was known for being for a thousand years being like a herbal, these monks, that's all they did. They just raised these herbal situations. Like the people in the neighborhood and the community would come there to get healed and all this type of stuff. It was very interesting. And so she, uh, you know, we worked and worked and worked and got all these amazing images. And about day nine, she just said, Hey, I'm going to my friend Julian's house. I was staying at her parents' place in um, Pimlico, which is pretty much where they shot a lot of Sherlock episodes with Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm -hmm. And I was staying in Pimlico uh, there and, 
I'm walking up the like the hallway at her uh, parents' house, and here's a Sebastian Salgado image. I'm like, whoa, 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 where are they getting this stuff? And it was because of the journalism school that her stepdad was a part of. The photography is a huge part of this, and he, I mean, they had amazing stuff in the hallways. And I was like, what is going on? You know, so she picked me up and, and we're on the way. Uh, she said that uh, my friend Julian's place is in Norfolk. We're going there to visit him. And I'm like, okay. And you know, so we pack up, we're going, she picks me up. We're on the way to Norfolk, which is a couple hours, I believe North East of London. <laughs> she says, uh, yeah, he's kind of under house arrest right now. And I was like, wait, Julian, house arrest. wait a minute, Julian, are you, are you talking about Julian Assange? And she said, yeah, I thought, I thought you knew uh, that's who my friend was. And I was like, I had, I might've heard Darren, our friend Darren talking about it, but I don't know. I didn't know. <laughs> and I'm literally look like the typical American tourist. I'm wearing shorts. I wasn't wearing Crocs with socks, but I might as well have. <laughs> and I just said, hey, will you pull over and let me change clothes? I'm looking at me. I'm dressed like a, you know, a German tourist in Hawaii. I said, you know, so she pulls over, she lets me, you know, we're on the M1 or M3 or M6. I'm not sure. And we, I get out and change clothes and two o'clock in the morning, I'm standing in the kitchen in a hunting lodge in Norfolk with Julian Assange, just face to face with him. And I'm just like, man, what is happening right now? And, you know, she'd gone there to help, I guess, cook and do things for them. She was a volunteer with WikiLeaks and, she worked with them for events and things like that. And uh, so she was there as part of that. And it was really, that was so odd. And then uh, I just remember like the next day, Sarah and I were talking. And I just said, you know, have you seen the photos of Julian online? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, go online. And then we did. We sat at the table in the kitchen. And we Googled these images. Everything that the Telegraph and all these different papers in London, they they on purpose made him look horrible it was like they would take flashes and they'd force light you know underneath them like if this if you were telling a ghost story with a flashlight and they would do anything they could to make the guy look like the biggest creeper in the whole world and it was you could tell you know you and me knowing enough about photography there was purpose in what they were doing you could see they were doing this this on purpose and it was one it was almost as if they were kind of told to paint the narrative of him as a horrible person so that they could kind of turn the crowd against him when he started doing what he was doing and it looked like there was just, you know, all kinds of things to make the guy look bad. And so I said, what we should do for him is to soften his image a bit. And I said, that's what we should do. We should try to make him look presentable and approachable because right now I'm terrified of this guy. I don't want to be near this guy. And she said, well, let's talk about it with him. We bring him in to the kitchen. The office was right off of the kitchen. He comes in and we just tell him, Julian, you know, people are telling you another narrative about you that's just not true. Because no matter what, Julian was always for open government and, and open uh, government. And that's what he wanted. Now, how he went about it sometimes was not the best thing. He would break these cables. You know, for instance, there was a country in Africa he broke cables on. And then, of course, they rioted and people got shot and killed. And he felt horrible about that. Uh, but that's sometimes what change looks like, you know, when truth comes to light. It doesn't look pretty, which, especially when you're dealing with world politics and, and um, events like that. You know, he was trying to bring the truth out. That's, that was his point. And how he went about it sometimes was not the way other countries liked it. He definitely was on the hit list for a lot of countries. They were, he was enemy, you know, public enemy number one. And when he broke the cables, and I think he published uh, the videos of us attacking civilians, Americans attacking civilians, just bombing them. And it broke on, I can't remember where, if it was YouTube or where, wherever it was. And then he became public enemy number one for the United States. 
he just kind of rattled the cage, you know, big time. You could see it showing up in his, in the Google search, simple Google search on his image of how he looked. And he just was a tyrant, you know, the way he came across. And I just said, we should be able to soften his image so people can hear what he's having to say. That's what the problem is. is they, they think of this way about him and they hate him immediately and not really knowing him. And we did it and it worked. It kind of worked. Um, I kind of consulted him during this time. You know, we'd be walking into the Royal Court of Justice in and out for his extradition hearings. And uh, I would tell him, hey, and they, like he walked in one day and he had glasses on. He had cut his hair and he's always had gray hair, but he looked a bit older this time. And they were like, he looks haggard and worried as he walked into the Royal Court of Justice. I said, Just, I said Julian, don't worry. Tomorrow, take your glasses off. Don't put them on. When you get to the steps before you go into the courtroom, put your glasses on, walk in the in the building. And then CNN reported, it was a scene in Russia, I think, and they reported, today he looked hopeful and optimistic, you know, and it's just that I, I had no idea I was going to influence the news cycles just by telling that one small, one small little change, you know, and it was incredible. And that's, I ended up, and I've, you know, I've spent my whole career helping people with their narrative artists, you know, photographers, I mean, it's not photographers, but uh, authors and musicians and things like that. And then next thing I know, I'm on the world stage helping this guy help uh, create his narrative. And it's, it's amazing. And we're going to literally spend a whole podcast episode on this, on, on mine, on the photo and taken because I've never talked about it. And honestly, I was always worried that there could be retaliation if I did, you know, cause you're dealing with espionage here. You're dealing with, um, enemies of the state you're dealing with that type of stuff and i was always afraid that somehow it would some harm would come to me or my family and others have shared things about julian and it did not work out so well for them so i've kept this one under my hat for a very long time and i haven't i haven't said anything until now well, i look forward to hearing that it's going to be incredible um there's some things especially about the last election people think they know and they don't uh why he did what he did when he released those cables on hillary clinton and you'll hear about that it's 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 simple or simpler than you think, and it, it but it's it's true, and it, and that's what happened, and it's just amazing, and I can't believe I sat there in the seat next to him. I was behind him in court. I was two seats behind him, sitting next to Amal Amal Clooney now, uh, because she was his amnesty lawyer at one point, and and he, she was kind of part of the crew, you know, and so there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that went on. It was a, it's an amazing story, and it ends up with this photo that I, sh- I shared during the. Uh, evenings with the masters I could not believe I've never been one to try to come off with some sort of a award-winning photojournalistic photo like that, but it, it's incredible story. Well, my last question, which yeah. I ask you, yes, is I ask them to recommend a photographer and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So would that photographer be and why? Hmm. I know a lot of people know about Chris Buck, uh, but I've always been a huge, huge fan of his, because he does what I do in that he shoots commercially, but he still somehow manages to make, you know, Dan has this quality too. It's a, it's a reoccurring theme where he makes people maybe not look so beautiful or perfect. Mm-hmm. A lot of the photos that Dan does, the same as Chris, he makes them look uh, uncomfortable. In fact, Chris's book that he did a few years ago was called Uneasy. Yeah. And I love that book and I'm obsessed with the idea like he is of just doing his own thing with celebrities. And that's kind of maybe something that I would like to explore a little bit, but he inspires me because he takes risks the second he walks out the door, you know, and from the very early stages, that's the way he's always been. He's got, he calls himself a contrarian, which I really like. 
and that shows up in his work. And that's kind of an identify with that a lot. And, you know, uh, that's kind of like when I first started, I kind of did what everybody did. And then I started finding myself doing the things for me. And a lot of times those things weren't pretty and they weren't perfect and they weren't about perfection or uh, making everything look as if it were, you know, accepted or, I don't know, commercially viable a lot of times. And I just kind of chose that. And he's kind of been an inspiration for me to kind of take that risk and to take that bold move sometimes. And I really love his work. If you haven't seen Chris Buck's work, go check it out. He's just one of those guys that's been one of my heroes for a long time. Yeah. And I did an interview with him uh, a couple of years back. And if you haven't listened to it, go back. It's there for you to pick up. You don't want to miss that. That was a great conversation. Man, you have such a great body of work. How long have you been doing this? 10 years? No, no. 14 going on 15. You have so much the, the the body of work and and it's I've just started in the last you know few months uh, getting into your interviews and your talks with other photographers and man what an amazing body of work there are a lot of people that aren't even around anymore that you were able to to get yeah. uh, Marilyn Mark and and things like that I'm just so impressed with this because I just love that you love it like I love it oh, I appreciate that I do thank you absolutely. Thanks to Alan for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting alanclarkphotography.com. In July, I'll be offering two separate online courses. The first is through LACP and is called Creating Personal Breakthroughs. This course is designed to help you transition from just making individual photographs into creating bodies of work that can be shared in an exhibition, book, or portfolio. I'll teach you how to reconsider who you are as a photographer and how to express that by identifying your strengths. My other course through Novecchi Creative is Use Your Life to Jumpstart Your Photography. In this class, I'll teach you to use your everyday life as the source of endless creativity. You'll learn how to see and photograph the ordinary and the mundane with new eyes and to transform that vision into great photography, even if you never leave the comfort of your own home. Find out more about both courses in the show notes or by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to Finally a Passenger, R.B. Klontz, and H. Mueller for their five-star reviews. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation through PayPal. Thanks to Maura Allen, Landry Major, Dave Rosenblum, Julian DeHaan, Jeremy North, George Rosakas, and Sharon Wiley for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. 
And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.